This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to the book of Judges this morning. Judges chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles in our pews, it's page 205, page 205 in the pew Bibles. But if you're new today, we're in the middle of a study of the book of Judges, which is a book in the Old Testament, and it's about broken people with a faithful God. We're all sinners. We're all broken in many ways, but our God is faithful. And that's a theme that comes through again and again and again in the book of Judges. And we've come today to the sixth chapter, which is really about exchanging your weakness for God's power. How do we do that? How can we exchange our weakness for God's power to be at work in and through our lives? And we see that in the life of Gideon. We're going to begin to look at Gideon's life. We'll look at Gideon today and next week. And we're going to see today that Gideon did not think of himself as particularly strong or courageous. He thought of himself as, as, as weak. But yet God's power worked through his life. So we're going to be kind of walking through the first 32 verses of chapter 6 today. We'll cover them pretty well and read through them. So I'm not going to read through all the verses before beginning because we're going to walk through them through the course of the message this morning. Let's pray together before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your spirit works through your word. And we thank you that, that through the power of your spirit working through the word, that incredible things can happen in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray for you to do that right now. These are crucial minutes together. Anytime that we open our Bibles and the word of God is taught, then incredible things can happen if you give us ears to hear. And so that we pray that you would do that. Open our ears, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to see Christ today. We need you. We need you to be placarded before our eyes. May we be drawn to you during these moments together. Help us to give you our all now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my heroes in the ministry is John Stott. John Stott is in heaven now, but he was pastor for many years of All Souls Church in London. But he would often go out and do outreach events, and especially on university campuses. And one time in 1958, Dr. Stott was at a university in Sydney, and he'd been conducting a series of meetings there among college students, and the day before the last meeting, he got word from England that his father had passed away. And in addition to his grief, he was also getting sick. In fact, he was losing his voice. But he was absolutely determined to, to stay and to preach that final meeting to these students. And so a few hours before that service, he asked some of the students to gather around him. 
And he asked one of them to read this verse of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where the Apostle Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And Dr. Stott said, I want you all to lay hands on me and pray that this verse would be a reality in my life as I preach tonight. And so they did that. Well, that night he did preach. He had to to keep his mouth less than half an inch away from the microphone um, to be heard. He could not exert any of his own, his normal personality in preaching. It was just sort of a flat, gravelly monotone as he just struggled to be heard and to preach through uh, what he was dealing with, with his voice and his grief and all the rest. But there was a tremendous response that night. And John Stott went back to Australia about ten times after that. And he said every time that he would go back to Australia... Someone would approach him and they would say, do you remember that last meeting in Sydney in 58? I was saved that night. My life changed that night. Uh, God took me to a new level that night. I, I, I devoted myself to ministry that night. As God's power was made perfect in, in weakness. And we see that here in Judges Six and, and as we sort of walk through chapter 6 and unpack what's going on here, what do, we, what do we see? The first thing that we see in this chapter is this. We see the discipline that forms us. The discipline that forms us. Look at verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves that are in the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So once again, we see the pattern of judges repeating, don't we? We see that once again in verse 1 that the people have plunged into sin. And because of that, they have brought a lot of self-inflicted pain into their lives. As someone once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And look at the cost to Israel here. The Bible says that they have been reduced, they were reduced to living in caves. I mean, they were in the promised land. This was supposed to be the land of milk and honey, and it could have been. But because of their sin, they have been reduced to 
living like primitive people in caves. And the Midianites are devouring all of their crops, all of their produce. And all of this pain was self-inflicted because of their sin. And the thing about sin is not just that it brings pain into our lives, but even worse is that it causes us to miss out on so many good things. They could have been been enjoying such abundance. They were in the land of milk and honey, the promised land. And here they are, they've been reduced to living like this. They're, it's not just that they're, they, they're bringing pain into their lives, but they're missing out on so many good things. That's what sin does to us. It brings a lot of self-inflicted pain on us, but even more than that, it causes us to miss out on so many good things. And verse 6 tells us here, that they had been brought very low because of Midian. Now listen, God is disciplining His people. But He's not just disciplining them in, for, the sake, for discipline's sake. God never does that. He does, he's not just punishing them to punish them. God doesn't work like that. And parents, we should not operate like that. Our, our punishment of our kids should never just be punitive. It's never just punishment. It shouldn't be punishment just to punish. Our, our punishment, our discipline should always be because we love them and it's to form them. It's to help them. To shape them out of love. And that's, that's why God disciplines us as well. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. So it's a forming discipline. God is forming His people through the painful discipline that they're going through. So we see the discipline that forms a second in Judges 6. We see the Word that convicts us. The word that convicts us. Verses 7 through 10. The Bible says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So, they cry out to God because they're in pain. And you expect at this point, going by the pattern of judges, what do we expect next? We expect God to immediately raise up a judge, right? He's going to raise up a deliverer, and eventually he is, but it's not what he does first. The first thing God does is he raises up a prophet. And we're not told who he is. It's an unnamed prophet. But the first thing God does here is he doesn't immediately raise up a deliverer. He raises up a prophet, To bring them God's word. And so this prophet comes. And we see in verses 7 through 10 
that this prophet is reminding the people of what God has done for them and how they have responded to him. And what has God done? God led them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. And how have they responded to God's grace and love? They basically responded by spitting in his face and worshiping false gods. And so God sends this prophet with this word to convict them. It's not what they wanted to hear. They were in pain. Self-inflicted pain, yes, but pain nonetheless. And what they wanted was to get out of their pain. They wanted a, a judge to come deliver them from the Midianites. Immediately, but God says, no. No. Before I take you out of pain... I want you to understand the reason for your pain. Before I get you out of this situation, I want you to understand what got you into this situation to begin with. And God often works like that in our lives too. Because, and it's actually the, His kindness. It's God's kindness to, to, to show us the deeper causes Dale Davis says this, Surely God's way with His people has not changed. Do we sometimes marvel at the inappropriate answers God gives to our urgent need? Like Israel, we may want escape from our circumstances while God wants us to interpret our circumstances. Sometimes we may need understanding more than relief. Sometimes God must give us insight before he dare grant safety. Understanding God's way of holiness is more important than absence of pain. Because you see, God is not like an unethical physician who just gives a bunch of meds to make you feel better and sends you away without treating the disease. God treats the disease that produce the symptoms. He gets down to the roots. And sometimes treating the disease involves surgery. Painful surgery. And that's what God is doing here. And He does that in our lives sometimes. He, he brings that conviction which can be painful. But we have to have it in order for healing to take place. So we see the discipline that forms us. We see the word that convicts us. And third, in chapter 6, we see the promise that sustains us. The promise that sustains us. Verses 11 and 12. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Okay, so now we meet the next judge and judges. His name is Gideon. We're going to look at Gideon this weekend, next week. Now, the place where we first meet Gideon, tells us all we need to know about how bad things had gotten in Israel. 
Because Gideon is down in a wine press trying to thresh wheat. That was not where they would thresh wheat. They would, they would do threshing of wheat out in an open space, usually on a hilltop, so that when they threw it up in the air, it could catch the breeze and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. But here is Gideon, pathetically, down at, trying to thresh wheat in this wine press. Why? It's because of the Midianites. It's, it's because they were hiding from the Midianites. I mean, it was just, so he's down there pathetically trying to thresh wheat in a wine press. And in this desperate condition, God shows up. And the angel of the Lord, who most scholars believe to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the angel of the Lord comes and he says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, Gideon has a problem with the Lord's statement here on two counts. First of all, it's pretty clear that Gideon does not see himself as a mighty man of valor. And it's also clear that Gideon's having a hard time seeing how God is with them at this point. Because what does he say next in verse 13? Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You see, Gideon here makes the same mistake that we sometimes make in our trials. We interpret our troubles sometimes as a sign that God is not there, that God has forsaken us, when that is not the case. You know, Hebrews 13, 5, God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And furthermore, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, that God is causing all things in our lives to work together for good, for those who love Him. So the right question to ask in our troubles is not, God, why have you left me because he hasn't left you the right question to ask is God I know that you're with me what are you trying to teach me what do you want to do in my life through this well second it's really clear from Gideon's response that he doesn't see himself <laughs> as a mighty man of valor I mean what is what, what do we see here next verses 14 and 15 the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And look at what Gideon says. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Now, you know, at least we can say for Gideon... He's not, he doesn't have delusions of grandeur, okay? He's not a legend in his own mind, uh, so I suppose that's, that's virtuous. But what's not good here 
about his attitude is that he doesn't seem to see what God can do. (laughs) Because the issue here is not whether Gideon's clan is the weakest or the strongest. Or whether Gideon is the least in his father's house or the greatest in his father's house. None of that is the issue. The only issue is, is God with him? Because if God is with you, who can stand against you? I mean, if, if, if God is with you, nothing else matters, right? God can handle anything. And clearly, God is with him. But he's not focused on God. He's focused on himself. He's focused on his own inadequacies. You know, I think the Christian writer Sharon Hood Miller is so right when she says this. There is a way of focusing on yourself and your brokenness that can become its own form of brokenness. So God invites us to focus on Him. The issue is not your weaknesses and inadequacies. The issue is who is Almighty God? If He's with you, everything else takes care of itself. And listen, God is with them. God is giving Gideon his word that he's going to be uh, with them. Uh, look at what he says. Verse 12, the Lord is with you. Uh, again, verse 14, God says to him, do I not send you? Again, verse 16, I will be with you. I mean, he has God's word. Gideon, I'm here with you. That's all you need to know. But Gideon wants a sign. Now, next, next week we're going to talk about the fleece being put out and all of that. We're not going to get to that today. But Gideon's desire for signs of confirmation comes even before he asks for the, you know, the fleece thing. It's, and we see it, first of all, in verses 17 and following. What happens? And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, and put them on this rock, and pour broth over them, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock, and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. So God here, just in patience... In grace and long-suffering patience, he gives this sign of his presence to Gideon. He should not have had to do so. His word was enough. But in, but in his patience, God, God gives Gideon this confirming sign that it is he who is speaking. Listen, we don't need signs. We need God's word. Okay, his word is enough. And, and, and what is the last thing Jesus tells us in the Great Commission? Before he sends into heaven, he, he tells us what we're to do until he comes. And what's the last thing he says? He says, 
I'm with you always. He's, he's with us. Okay, and so we have his word, and we have the ultimate sign, don't we? The ultimate sign is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. What greater sign could we have than the resurrection? And therefore, we can trust his word. But listen, we can sympathize with Gideon here, can't we? I mean, if we can't empathize... With, with Gideon, then we need to work on our empathy because look at the situation. I mean, the, the nation is in a mess. I mean, they couldn't have been any more low than what they were. Here's Gideon. He's a regular guy, very regular guy. He's not, he's not super, you know, strong or charismatic or honored or whatever. He belongs to a weak clan. He's kind of the least in his own father's house among his his family members and so forth. There's nothing extraordinary about Gideon, but God comes to him and he calls him to do this extraordinary thing. He says, you're going to be my vessel to lead the nation out of the mess that they're in. I mean, we we can understand. We can sympathize with how Gideon felt. Here's what we need to know. When we face a big challenge, when we face something that we cannot possibly handle on our own. Here's what we need to understand. We need to understand that God is going to give us the grace we need in that situation, but He doesn't give us the grace that we need before that situation. He gives us His grace and His power when we need it. Let Let me tell you what I mean. John Lennox is a professor at Oxford, Christian professor. And he tells about one time he was in a conversation with a Russian believer. And this guy had been imprisoned for years in the gulag during the uh, time of the Soviet Union. He had been imprisoned in the gulag for the crime of teaching the Bible to his own children. And they threw him in this prison camp for years and years. And this Russian brother in Christ was sharing with John Lennox about the things that he had experienced in the gulag, the things that he had seen in the gulag, things that no human being should ever see. And as he was telling his story, John Lennox said, I, I, was, I was just thinking to myself, I, I, I could never do that. <laughs> There's no way. I could never, I could not handle it. There's no way I could do that. Um, and suddenly, this Russian believer looked at him and he, and he said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? <laughs> and, and Dr. Lennox said, I was kind of embarrassed. And I, I said, you know, I was just thinking that very thing. I could, not, I could not cope with that. And this Russian believer said this. He said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me. See, Hebrews Hebrews 4.16 says that he gives us grace and mercy 
in our time of need. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day what? Our daily bread. God says, I'm going to give you what you need today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Guess what? When tomorrow gets here and you need grace for the challenge of tomorrow, Lamentation says his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Okay? He'll give you tomorrow's mercy when, tomorrow, when tomorrow's mercies, when the need for them gets, gets here tomorrow. Okay? But live, live in the moment. God will give you grace for the moment. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, give me what I need today. When tomorrow comes, you're going to be there too. But right now, give us what we need today. Give us the grace and the mercy that we need for the challenge of the moment. That's something that we can learn from this. The promise that sustains us. Fourth, the obedience that grows us. The obedience that grows us. Now, Gideon knows at this point that God is really with him. He knows it. Deep in his bones, he knows that God is with him. And he is really going to need to know that. (laughs) Because he's about to get his first assignment. And it is a doozy. What does God tell Gideon to do next? That night... The Lord said to him, verse 25, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Remember, Asherah was like Mrs. Baal. So they would have Asherah poles set up beside their Baal idols. And God says in verse 26, And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. (laughs) So God says to him, okay, here's what you're going to do, Gideon. You're going to cut down dad's idols and then you're going to use them for the only thing they're good for, firewood. Now, Gideon knows what this means. And it doesn't just mean that, you know, he's going to get grounded by dad. It means he's going to get put in the ground, okay, by the people of the town who will kill him for what he's doing. And look at their reaction. It's totally predictable. Verses 28 and following. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. All of this was totally predictable. But what happens next was not predictable. What happens next is totally unexpected. What happens next turns this story in a way that is totally unexpected. What happens? Verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? 
or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. This is not what we expect to hear from Joash. Joash is the one who built the Baal idol and the Asherah pole in his own yard. What's going on here? The faith of Gideon has put steel in the spine of Joash. That's what's going on. And that's what happens sometimes. You know what? When you see another believer go to a new level in their faith and their obedience, sometimes it takes you to a new level. That's why we need a church family, by the way. Okay? We need one another. Right? We're here to help one another. Right? You don't get that kind of encouragement outside of a local church. We are here to stir up one another. Hebrews tells us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Are you that kind of a person? Are you stirring up people to love and to good works? Are, is there something about your life that when your brothers and sisters in Christ look at your life, your relationship with the Lord, your faith, is there something about your faith that makes them want to go to a deeper level? Are you a thermometer who just kind of takes the spiritual temperature or a thermostat who sets it? We want to, we want to take people higher, right? We want to be that kind of a, of a person. Now, isn't it interesting that before God tells Gideon to go out and lead the nation, save the nation, He calls him to take care of his own house, right? <laughs> before you go out and lead the people in liberation, <laughs> there's, there's something that needs to take place right here in your own backyard. I want you to cut down these idols right here at your own house. You know, God calls us to deal with our own hearts first. God calls us to smash the idols of our own hearts before anything else. And make no mistake, God will not share His glory with another. We cannot have it both ways. We can't have God and idols in the same heart. It doesn't work like that. That's what Joash was trying to do, by the way. You know, if you had asked Joash before this happened, Joash, do you believe in God? He would have said yes. Hey, how did Gideon know about the Exodus? How did he know about all the things that God had done for Israel in the past? He tells us, doesn't he? He says, this is what our fathers told us. So Joash had told Gideon, the story of the Exodus. He had told Gideon about all the great things that God had done for Israel, yet Joash built these altars to idols in his own yard. He wanted it both ways. He, he, wanted to, he wanted to worship the one true God and worship idols at the same time. It can't happen. God says, if you want me, Baal has to go. You know, Jesus tells us, 
in Matthew 6:24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And money is the bail. It's the Asherah pole of our 21st century American culture today. God says you can't love me and love money. It doesn't work like that. And how do you know if money has become an idol? How do you know if you love it? How willing are you to part with it? Are you willing to cheerfully and joyfully and generously part with it for the kingdom of God? There's your indication. That's how you discern whether or not money has become an idol. You can't serve two masters. It's not going to happen. You've got to choose. Elijah says it on Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people. This is, this is that great scene on Mount Carmel. The showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And so the people are all there. They're standing around. And Elijah comes near to all the people and he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. You know, what would be your answer? You have to choose. You know, if God is going to be your God, then money can't be. If God is going to be your God, then porn can't be. If God is going to be your God, then a, a desire for popularity and prestige and position, that can't be. You've got to choose. You've got to take a stand. You've got to burn some idols. You might have to burn some bridges. And only then will you be able to say with Joshua, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may that be said of us. May we be able to, to say that of ourselves, of our house, with integrity. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we just continue to pray together, what needs to happen in your life for that statement to be true? For some of you here, it means a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Because you know about religion, but you don't have a relationship with the Savior. He loves you. He's demonstrated His love for you by His work for you on the cross. He rose from the dead that you can have eternal life. And He calls you to repent, to turn. Turn from trying to do life apart from Him and turn to Him and trust Him. Rest Place all your confidence. Rely totally on what He's done for you by dying for your sins and rising from the dead and say, Lord, I give you my life today. I trust in you. I follow you as my Savior and my King. For some of you, it means burning some idols. What is it in your life today that is hindering your fellowship with God? 
What is it today that has usurped God's rightful place as king in your life? If he's not king of every area, if you're withholding any area of your life from him, Jesus is not king. Don't kid yourself. He's to be king of every aspect of your life. Your family life, your work life, your finances, your sex life. Every aspect of your life is Christ reigning as king. Have you taken your hands off the controls and given them to Christ? He calls you to himself. He calls you to, to experience what life with him as Lord and king is like. And it's a lot better. It's a lot better than life without him reigning as king. It's a lot better than riding the fence and limping between two opinions. It's time to take a stand. Time to take a stand. Burn the idols. Burn the bridges. Say, Lord, I'm following you. No reserves, no regrets. In just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation. If you want to give your life to Christ, if you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, just anything in your life that you want to pray with, I'm going to be here, other pastors will be, our altar is open to you. And so, Father, we give you now this time of of invitation. Would you work in our hearts today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing 
If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.